0: Practice, <clears throat> And um, sometimes it's nice to focus on a particular precept for a number of weeks. And uh, when we do our um, regular two-hour sessions with the sort of Dharma inquiry group afterwards, so we, we use the Dharma inquiry group in combination with the precepts to uh, discuss it with each other at, um, at a level which is... Uh, um, safe for everybody. Um, Joko Beck, the Charlotte Joko Beck, the founder of The in My School, um, would always say things like she wasn't that interested in what wonderful, enlightened experience we may have on our cushions. Um, she was much more interested in how the practice uh, showed up in everyday life of work and relationships. Uh, she was much more interested in how a partner found our, how how they found being with us. Um, And she was just very interested in um, how this practice that we do on our cushions translates into our everyday life and how we practice no harm as best we can. Um, Bearing in mind that it's almost impossible at times not to do harm, even if it's unintentional. And one of the um, what we've been focusing on is how we can witness that in ourselves and others and uh, through the practice of becoming a compassionate witness, that is one who is aware as much as we can be, that is trying to maintain our mindfulness or awakefulness, and uh, rather than going off into minimization or denial or disavowal or dissociation or various levels of unawareness, trying to maintain our awareness in the face of what sometimes we may witness in everyday life, uh, which can be confronting at times, either within ourselves or within others. And um, so, the uh, the other aspect of the compassionate witnessing is how we respond. So, you know, these two aspects of Zen practice are about maintaining our awareness and being present to this moment. And the other aspect of Zen practice is how we respond to. Each uh, situation as it, as it arises in our lives, and we want to respond as best we can compassionately and as we're responding we can be responding to some someone else or we can be having responding to uh, just the dishes that we're washing up or we can also be responding to ourselves as well um, so um so compassionate witnessing is, is is one way of understanding how we put the precepts into action, how, how we apply the precepts. And um, the particular precept that I'm that stood out for me uh, recently is the one that we've just read: uh, witnessing the reality of ill will and the pain of uh, divisiveness or divisiveness in myself and in the world. I take it the way of letting go of anger, and um, and in particular, I've been reflecting a lot on this. Uh, this is a, one particular aspect of this precept, and um, and that is um, how this ill will originates uh, when someone has injured us and how a desire to punish uh, those who have harmed us or our loved ones arises within us. And um, and punishment can also be sometimes if it's uh, can also be aimed at the self as well. So and you can see this getting played out both on the individual level and on the collective level. So, um, if it's a, something that we take as being a personal uh, uh, hurt or injury to our souls, that someone has done to us, um, we can do our best to try and witness how our uh, anger arises and how we can maybe subtly want to uh, get back at uh, revenge or pay back that person in some way. And we can also observe that in a much more uh, devastating way on a collective level when uh, either nation-states or ethnic groups perceive another nation-state or ethnic group or grouping of some kind having uh, perpetrated an injury and, uh, and at those times of course we can see and witness the the full force of, of uh, modern technology unleashed in, in the desire to uh, punish the person or ethnic group, or that hurt our ethnic group or nation state in some way. And of course, one of the consequences, uh, both uh, of that too, is the what is re- often referred to as the collateral damage that arises uh, when uh, targets are uh, are focused in on, bombs are unleashed, and often that. Uh, so-called collateral damage, innocent civilians, children, women, and so on. But um, punishment um, of the other uh, is quite universal in human history. And uh, in some ways, I was thinking it can take two basic forms, a direct form and an indirect form. So the direct form is, I guess, uh, punishment through violence, either through... um, words or thoughts or deeds or actions um, many thousands of years ago that might have been using a stick today it might be using some other form of technology um, and, and that's the most obvious form but the, the, the indirect form i think has also been around and um and various variations on ostracism um, you know in uh back in our ancestral days, to be ostracized from the tribe was a a huge punishment. And um, so so ostracism or various variations of withholding contact or isolation are also forms of punishment. That we can often be found, so this, this negative dynamic can be found both at this individual level, and at the collective level, you know, so at the collective level we might segregate or ostracize groups behind various boundaries or walls or barbed wires, etc. Uh, but much closer to home though, and, and probably which is a pro- lot more relevant to our personal lives, is the way in which this form of punishment can also be... Uh, observed to occur in our in in our in our families, uh, uh, ranging from domestic violence to custody disputes. And the denial of contact in various ways as a form of punishment. And um, again, this um, collateral damage often lands on the, uh, the children, the innocent children who are caught in the adult disputes. So, um, as most of you would know, there is an alternative to this. Um, most religions and cultural traditions have some various forms of uh, uh, restorative justice, reconciliation practices, and, uh, and forgiveness practices. Um, when I lived in New Zealand, um, in the Maori tradition, there was a, a very uh, well-known cultural restorative practice. And, um, which was incorporated by the uh, contemporary uh, things like youth conferencing and that kind of thing, where the the, um, the perpetrator of the crime of the crime has a conference with the victim of the crime, and, uh, and a rest- a restoration takes place um, without the necessity of some form of violent punishment or ostracism. So. Um in this talk I want to illustrate this particular aspect of um, letting, or the way of letting go of anger though, and I want to focus on forgiveness, and um, and how the way of letting go of, of anger is achieved uh, in the act of forgiving. And um, I'm just going to demonstrate that with a couple of um, personal stories, one my own story and a story from someone who I know, who has given me permission to share the story. Um, But first of all, just on the etymology of the word forgiveness, um, it's important, and I think these stories will illustrate this, Mm -hmm. that um, to forgive someone doesn't mean to condone their actions. So we're not, by forgiving someone, we're not saying it's okay, what they did was okay. To forgive, it's more about the means to let go of the desire to punish. And forgiveness has its origins from apparently Old English. There's an Old English word uh, called forgive which means to give, grant, allow, remit a debt, pardon an offence. Also to give up, um, in the sense of to give up the desire or power to punish. And um, so from a, from, a, from a Buddhist perspective, um, this desire for revenge or to punish or to pay back that we may witness within ourselves um, can be seen as a, as a form of, of hatred or poison. And, um, and as such, it represents a toxic emotion um, which can have negative consequences on the self. Um, so in the, in the practice of forgiveness, we're actually... Um, moving towards a healing within ourselves. And um, so therefore, what we are letting go of, or relinquishing in the act of forgiveness, is our own hatred or anger. So I'm going to illustrate this with two family stories. Um, In the first story, the, um, the victim, who does not forgive the perpetrator, then the second family story, the victim does forgive the perpetrator. Okay, so the first story is from my, my first marriage, and um, um, it was um, um, uh, when, when I separated from my first wife, it was one of those separations, which was um, uh, not amicable, and um, not cooperative as many of separations are not and um, and my first wife was in a great deal of pain and um, um, and um, one of the ways in which um, this was acted out was to um, deny or make it very difficult to, for me to have contact with my five-year-old son at the time um, and uh, Uh, through the means of false allegations. And uh, this particular injury that I experienced or hurt, which affected both me and my son, uh, went on for a number of years throughout, throughout his childhood and adolescence. And unfortunately, we weren't able to resolve it. And I had very little contact with my son, and also very little contact with my ex-wife. And, um, and when he was uh, in his, uh, would have been probably around about the time he was in his early 20s, um, the, um, uh, my, uh, my ex-wife was, uh, was dying of terminal illness, cancer. It was actually quite sudden. And um, I had a friend, a very close friend of mine, and a close friend of my ex-wife, and he basically rang me up and told me about the situation, that she was in hospital and that she'd like to see me. Um, and with the, uh, the, the, the anger that was still in my heart, I, I declined that invitation. and. Uh, um, and uh, so I didn't go and visit her, I withheld uh, that from her and uh, she died uh, without us ever having any opportunity to resolve whatever we could have resolved at that moment. And uh, so in some ways that's that's I guess an illustration of how with holding on to my sense of injury and holding on to my sense of anger and desire to punish her, I missed out an opportunity to practice compassion. And um, so that's an example of holding on to the anger. This this second story um, relates to someone I know very well uh, called Annie. Um, this is our story about uh, Annie and her mother and uh, Annie grew up in Glasgow uh, which is quite notorious, or was in those days anyway for violence and um, her mother was very violent and uh, there was a lot of physical and emotional abuse and humiliation that took place as she was growing up both directed at her and some of the other siblings. <clears throat> um, but when she left home and as she grew up, um, it was never really talked about in the family. And, uh, and in some ways, I think even for Annie, it was kind of like forgotten or compartmentalised away in her trauma memory system. And she'd go on with her life and she maintained contact with her mother and with her siblings. Um, and then a, a number of years ago, um, Annie was, um, uh, caught in a flood, and, um, the flood was actually quite traumatizing, and, uh, as is so often the case, um, uh, when a, a trauma happens, it can reopen up older traumas from the past, uh, of a different kind, because of the fear that's involved in the flood, uh, and the, uh the memories of her earlier uh, traumas came flooding back to her and um, she uh, went to visit her mother and confronted her and um, unfortunately um, her mother wasn't really able to acknowledge or apologise what had happened uh, she made a couple of excuses and um, it didn't go, down, didn't go very well and um, so at that point Annie cut off all contact with her mother and um, anyway uh, and um, and this was maintained for a number of years until eventually she also heard that uh, from family members that her mother was dying and um, so she decided um, to meet her younger brother in, in uh, Sydney, and she caught the train down to Sydney and met her younger brother, and they went to the hospital to see their mother. When they arrived at the, her mother's bedside, um, the, mom, the mother was sleeping. Uh, she was quite, probably heavily sedated with morphine. And um, so, um, One of the brighter sort of memories of growing up that they shared together was that sometimes this particular family would sing songs together, especially at certain times of the year, such as New Year's Eve, and everybody would get up and sing a song. And their father had a particularly good voice. And both Annie and her younger brother remembered um, how um, their father used to sing this song called Blue Heaven uh, to her mother and they would dance and and, and so on. And so they started singing the song. Both Annie and her brother have good voices and the mother opened her eyes. And uh, she had a big smile, a big smile lit up her face. The kind of smile they had rarely seen growing up as children. And she thought at first, she said, Am I in heaven? And then she saw her youngest son and her eldest daughter. And she realised she was still alive, deep down here on earth. And she said to them, this is the happiest day of my life. Mm. And then, Annie returned home and then a couple of days later her mother died. <clears throat> so we can see from that story how that form of compassionate witnessing creates the opportunity for happiness, both for the perpetrator and for the the victim. That is, the, the daughter of the mother, Annie in this case, let go of her desire to punish her mother by withholding contact. We can also see from this story how forgiveness, or the act of forgiveness, is not necessarily dependent upon or conditioned upon apology or of the wrongdoing by the perpetrator. Forgiveness is a choice. And when we forgive, we are letting go of our anger. It is like a gift that we give both to ourselves and to the person who we are forgiving. Forgiveness or the letting go of the desire for punishment is entirely the choice of the victim. It is an act that has to come from an open heart, If we cannot find it in our heart to open, then we cannot forgive. And we are left holding on to our ill will towards the person who hurt us. However, and here is the catch, in holding on to our ill will, uh, we are also hurting ourselves. So forgiveness transforms violence within ourselves. But we cannot do forgiveness rationally. It's not something we can rationally persuade ourselves to do. Therefore, we've got to start where we are. It cannot be forced. We just have to feel the reality of what is. And if the reality of what is, is our own resistance to forgiving, in the form of holding on to our own self-centred thoughts, then that's where we must start. And this practice might take days, or months, or years then, at some point, when we feel our heart beginning to open, we may be able to recognize that the person who injured us did so from a place of pain within themselves. And when we realize this, we are moving away from our usual self-centered preoccupation into the realization of our common humanity. So, so that's one example of um, how the way of letting go of anger c- can be practiced. and When our heart opens, we have already, in a way, let go of the anger and forgiveness has now taken its place.